Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Some would argue that there is a boy crisis in America. Girls are graduating from college in far greater numbers. Their numbers in law school, business school, and in postgraduate programs are exceeding boys, and the numbers and imbalance continue to grow. Simultaneously, every day we see bad behavior on the part of men. Harvey Weinstein, Charlie Rose, and the president are but the tip of the iceberg, just the poster boys for bad behavior. So how do we stem the tide? The answer perhaps lies in understanding today's boys and young men and hoping to set them on a better path for the 20th century. My guest, Adam Cox, has been working on just that for many years. Dr. Adam Cox is a clinical psychologist whose work includes thousands of hours interviewing children in schools around the world. He's a sought-after therapist and frequent speaker on the psychology of boys, and he's the author of the previous books on Purpose Before 20, Boys a Few Words, and No Mind Left Behind. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Adam Cox here to talk about his latest book, Cracking the Boy Code, How to Understand and Talk with Boys. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. There's lots of talk today about the problems that boys are facing. How real are these problems, and how much of it is a reality that's been created by so much discussion about it? Where where does the reality start and the rhetoric end, kind of? Well, I think the concern was, you know, at least initially founded on uh, some pretty significant issues. And it's true, you know, your introduction laid out some of those issues very well, that uh, particularly with respect to younger males, problems in school have been surfacing and uh, appear to be escalating for some time. And there's a real social divide, uh, at least in, in the United States, with respect to the futures of, uh, you know, males and females once they finish high school, that uh, many males have decided that uh, the, the traditional course of going to college and pursuing uh, work or some advancement in their profession through these traditional steps is no longer really rewarding them. And I think that was, you know, really amplified uh, during the, the recent recession and when many millennials just decided to kind of go in a different direction altogether. Um, I think some of the other issues, and, and that a lot of that has to do with the social and emotional development of boys, that's, that's another story, and that has been going on for many years. But I think one of the reasons that it seems so important now is that our world has become so intensely social. We are so much better uh, at at social communication, we use social media, we, we are required and expected to relate to other people with a very high level of emotional intelligence. And so some of these social and emotional challenges of boys have really become, you know, uh, front and center hot button issues. At the same time, let me say that one of the reasons that I wrote Cracking the Boy Code is that you know, I, I've been working on this issue for 25 years, been working with kids, you know, as young as five and right through uh, college age, you know, uh, on their social or emotional development. And what I have felt is that we have so pathologized what it means to be a boy in our culture that we have completely forgotten about their strengths, their their natural assets and abilities. And so I really feel like it's time for uh, a reset where we think about what some of those strengths are and begin to address those directly. To what extent, though, do we have to think of them within the context of what societal needs and employment needs and just the reality of the world today? In many ways, the natural strengths of girls, and you touched on this in talking about the social aspect, 
the natural strength of girls has fit in perfectly with where we have changed to as a society. The natural strengths of boys have not. Yeah, there's a there's definitely a truth to that. At the same time, it's going to be you know in, in a in a generation or two, we can't expect to you know rewire uh, an entire gender so that they can suddenly accommodate uh, 21st century employers or uh, you know fit into whatever gaps the uh, you know the the country or the workforce wants them to fit into. So, and I think you know part of the challenge in relating to boys and helping them is to first be able to connect with them, Jeff. And so what I have seen is that very often we put the cart before the horse. We're trying to talk to boys about advanced topics and topics that involve a great deal of complexity before we have found a tone that they can relate to and in which they're actually able to hear us. Because one of the things that other scientists have worked on is that, you know, the hearing of girls much better than the hearing of boys, and particularly when it comes to hearing social cues like the prosody of speech, the pitch, the rate, and the rhythm, boys just, just they don't do that as naturally. And so I've tried to advocate a kind of nonverbal signaling approach that really speaks to the natural processing capabilities of boys. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, and you, you mentioned before you've been doing this work for, for 20 plus years, how you've seen boys change, what you've seen different in terms of boys today. Well, I, you know, I, I think that uh, the game culture is for sure had a massive effect. I don't know that it's changed the nature of boys, but I think that it has, um, in some unfortunate ways, made uh, their more difficult aspects of their nature uh, more difficult to reach. So, for example, let me just uh, give a, a quick example. If we say to someone, my dog died last week, If you are a young male, a boy, chances are what you just heard is you had a dog. This dog died. This event happened last week. You heard just the facts. Because what we know is that boys are processing language almost, you know, over there on the all over on the left uh, side of their brain where we hear the facts and we make sense of logic and linear thinking. But your right hemisphere missed the facial expression of the person that just said that. You didn't notice their eyes. You didn't notice the qualities of speech that would have given you a more complete meaning of what was just said to you. So we have a lot of boys who are only tuning in to part of the social frequencies of social interaction. And so as a result, they miss lots of information and they are then not responding appropriately. So if we learn to use a tone that speaks directly to that left hemisphere, we do a much better job of being heard. So and game culture for sure has had a massive effect on that, that, you know, a lot of the natural practice that you would have gotten reading social cues from growing up and having, you know, more social interaction with other people are relatively lost when you're spending five, six hours a day, you know, uh, watching some type of screen. How do we begin to address this? How do we get inside the, the heads of these young men and begin to address this? I think that, you know, the, the first thing that we do, there's, there's two things. I, I should mention that in the course of my work with boys, I spent two years 
traveling the world and doing focus groups with kids between the ages of 9 and 18 about where they find a sense of purpose in their life, a sense of significance. So the first half of my book is all about the strategies for using vocal tone and eye contact so that you make boys feel less vulnerable and more willing to engage. They can hear you better. They can more comfortably respond to your inquiries. The second half, though, is that we need thematic issues. We need to be talking about themes and topics in boys' lives that have relevance and that pull them toward us rather than always talking to them about what they have done wrong. Because 90% of the kids in our culture think that when a parent wants to have a serious conversation with them, that the basic premise of that conversation is, I've done something wrong. I'm in trouble again. And so we sit them down at the kitchen table, we look deeply into their eyes, and they have a moment of like, okay, here we go. And they don't want to look at us, and they feel uh, you know, almost violated, and they just are so anxious about that type of interaction. So we need uh, strategies for managing our our conversational skills, and we also need some understanding of what kinds of themes are of high priority to boys. How important is the issue of role models, and and what impact does it have, the degree to which we're seeing so many problems for men today? Well, I think that that's a huge issue, and, you know, so one of the reasons that we need to have better conversations is that if we don't, then boys will only have the most, you know, uh, known role models to refer to. I mean, of course they have athletes, and, you know, sometimes there are the infamous role models, such as, you know, all the males that set off the, the Me Too movement. And so, you know, if if we don't have real conversations with kids about, you know, other males in, in culture, then I think that we, you know, we only are relying on stereotypes. Let me just add along these lines, Jeff, that I think that one of the most under-discussed issues in the psychotherapy of boys, and this is coming from someone who spent 25 years and who made this mistake for many of those years, is there's almost no discussion of love. Love never comes up in psychotherapy with boys. In most cases, we avoid the discussion of love because we think it's a, a prelude to talking about sex or that their only reference for love is that it's going to somehow be connected with sex. But I think that we need to help boys be more comfortable just talking about different manifestations of love, where it emerges in culture, how do you love your family, how is that love expressed, all those kinds of things. And when you do that, it's amazing. You think that, well, they're going to have nothing to say, but when you've set the tone and you've made it comfortable for them to connect, they will go and go and go on a topic like love. What are we seeing in terms of differences as it relates to education, particularly education of the parents of these young boys? Well, I think parents are a whole lot more savvy than they were a generation ago about some of the gender differences in learning. And so, you know, we are now uh, very familiar with the fact that boys are having lots of issues in school with attention and that there's uh, a lot of incidents of uh, learning disability among boys. And I think that parents, and this is a very positive thing, are are expecting more from schools. And I think that during, you know, uh, parent-teacher meetings, parents expect to hear that teachers are also savvy about some of what those differences are and that they're using instructional strategies that they have learned from experience appeal to boys and uh, so I think there's a there's a 
a change that has happened at school and that parents are a very important part of leading that change. I notice that when I go to schools and I give a talk for parents about the communication of boys, it's almost like standing room only. Parents cannot wait for a conversation uh, or help in, in helping boys to develop some of those social skills. And uh, so I, I think parents are really the key. And sometimes we say, you know, well, kids are growing up at home, but school is about a set of academic issues. And I think that that's a really false dichotomy. Kids now spend so much time at school that I think it's fair to say that they are growing up at school. And so schools should take the lead in working with some of these social and emotional skills. And how are schools and teachers responding to this? There is a mixed response. I think in some schools, they are way out ahead of this, and they saw this coming many years ago. And I, I mean, I am now visiting schools where the architecture of the school is changing to accommodate kids. For example, boys seem to do well in schools that have big, wide hallways and that have larger, wider portals. There's a, there's a, a, a more kind of a kinetic experience for boys as they move through a school space. There's a school in Massachusetts that does something remarkable called flop, where the kids literally flop on the ground every time they leave the building and come back into the building. They've almost understood that boys need this kind of, you know, moment of quiet and stillness to kind of gather their focus, gather their, uh, you know, uh, energy back a little bit and make the transition back to coming uh, into the classroom. And when I interviewed kids at that particular school, even though the school day had to be extended to accommodate all of these flops that they were doing during the day, not one kid would have wanted to go back to the old way. So I think kids also are kind of helping schools to understand that, you know, these opportunities to be more physical, to stand more, to move more are are really helping. And I guess the concern on the other side of that would be that in, in those schools that are being more progressive about it, that we're setting up unrealistic expectations, that those aren't necessarily the things that are going to happen to them in the real world. Well, and, and what I would say to that is is that every generation carves the world to accommodate its nature. So, you know, all of these kids that we're worried about as having limited attention are going to shape the world in a way to accommodate the nature of their attention. And I think there's no reason that boys shouldn't do the same. And don't we sort of see that already, Jeff? Don't we see that there are many individuals, professional people, who go for a run on their lunch break or who are taking walks or have a gym? I, I, I read now that, you know, mm -hmm. people are developing really uh, effective sleeping spaces uh, within their workplace and so forth. I think that that's just all coming. I, I don't think it's unrealistic to expect that those things will occur as the next generation matures. Can we learn anything specific as we look at those boys that are coming out of schools today and that are really succeeding and succeeding well? How are they different? What do we learn from their success? We can absolutely learn something from them, and the thing that we should be learning, but which we unfortunately miss, is that there is some small select group of kids who has a much greater, uh, much stronger sense of purpose and direction than other kids do, and that is the key. It's okay if you go to college and change your major several times because you have new experiences that change who you are or what you want in life. What's not okay is to feel no sense of calling. Mm 
We have too many kids who reach adolescence and have this mindset, this vision of how success happens, that it's like, well, I work really hard in school, I get super good grades, I'm at the top of my class, and then I walk up to a big buffet table full of vocations and I just pick the one that looks tastiest to me. What a mistake that is. What a recipe for unhappiness that is. We should be helping kids during adolescence, even earlier, find that sense of calling and significance, uh, what is their sense of purpose in life, and we only find that by having kind of a multitude of experiences. No one develops a sense of purpose just by thinking about it or by having heart-to-heart conversations with members of the family. You have to try things and do things. That's why in the back of my book I have uh, an appendix of like 50 different ideas for purposeful work, beginning for kids at age six or seven, because by that age, many kids are already ready to do something that feels a little bit more purposeful than just household chores. What Also, what do we learn from looking at the tremendous success that girls have had in the past 20 years? Well, I think that the natural abilities of girls, certainly, as you indicated earlier, have... Uh, you know, have been a good match for the way that occupations have evolved and that as we've moved away from manufacturing and and more toward uh, service uh, and especially interpersonal uh, service types of work and uh, professions, that um, that has really benefited the natural abilities of, of girls. I think also that for whatever reason, I, and I mean, certainly there are many, many girls who are infatuated with games, and there are many uh, women who are, you know, some of the top designers of games. It does not seem to be as much of an uh, kind of an addiction epidemic for girls as it is for boys. I, I can recall that 20 some years ago, I rarely had kids that went into, you know, a psychiatric hospital uh, during the course of a, a typical year, maybe just two or three. Now it seems like on a weekly basis, I'm seeing someone, almost always a boy, have to get some type of treatment for uh, game addiction. So I think that there is a real, uh, you know, vulnerability among boys to get caught up in these feedback loops of stim- stimulation that uh, lead them astray. And I think also the, you know, the greater maturity that we so often see among middle school and high school girls helps them to know that their decisions are more consequential at an earlier age than, than many boys might realize that. What impact are you seeing all of this change happening in the relationship between young men and young women? Oh, that is a, that is a real kind of, you know, uh, important issue. I mean, I see, you know, many changes, many of the developmental hurdles that uh, young men might have embraced uh, several generations ago, now they seem to be so hesitant. One of the ones that many parents of teenagers are probably aware of is that there are so many boys that are not all that eager to drive. So we have a lot of kids who, you know, at age 17 or 18 are still feeling somewhat reluctant about getting their driver's license or driving. And when I ask kids about that, I hear that there is a lot of fear and uh, a lot of anxiety about that. I think some of the same is affecting 
protecting kids with respect to dating and relationships. There is fear and anxiety about commitment and, and about being heard and what can happen and all these kinds of things. So I think kids are putting the brakes on a lot of those things and that they, you know, they, they have, you know, relationships that we might think, you know, from, uh, from our own kind of perspective are somewhat superficial. They involve a lot of texting or uh, a lot of, you know, online social media uh, communication and not so much time spent, you know, face-to-face. So I think that some of those uh, differences are, are apparent. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting that, you know, if you talk to high school girls uh, about what they kind of hope for in their relationships with young men, they hope to uh, be with, with guys that will talk to them about serious things. This kind of turns up in research. I noticed this in my office is that there is a kind of seriousness and maturity that you find in adolescent girls that you, uh, I think, naturally feel concerned. Will, will it be matched by the maturity of adolescent boys? And I think they're really you know, running behind the curve at this point. Talk about that fear and anxiety that you talk about, particularly with respect to something like driving, and why do we have such higher levels of this fear and anxiety today? I mean, driving is one of those things that was a kind of rite of passage. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I I think, you know, for driving, I think there's a sense of danger. I think literally that driving, they're all concerned about danger, that car accidents are serious, that the injuries from car accidents are serious, they're incredibly expensive. You know, you can have a financial disaster as a result of a, a car accident. So I think the, the, the magnitude of that fear, but in general, of course, everybody who is reading any major newspaper knows that there is an epidemic of anxiety, especially among uh, adolescent kids. And I think that it is among adolescent males, the cause of that anxiety and despair is totally misunderstood. We chase uh, solutions like, you know, like it's just a chemical imbalance or there's something genetic going on, or we think even that it's being caused by electronics or uh, you know, not doing well in school, and none of those are the explanation, I don't think. I think the real issue is that we have a whole generation of kids affected by existential despair. That's what the issue is among boys. It's always what it comes down to is that they have lost their way. That's what I mean by existential despair. Kids have lost their way. They do not have a sense of purpose. They don't know what they stand for. They don't know what their life is adding up to. When you interview adolescent boys around the world, their number one fear about the future is that they will end up in a job that feels like someone they are not. So they are terribly worried about being funneled towards something and about the financial obligation when they get there, when they reach adulthood, without having had a chance to have figured out who they are and where they fit in the world. And is this a problem that that society, and I guess baby boomers most of all, have created? I mean, we certainly, and I think I'm a little bit older than you, but we certainly think about our experiences growing up. And none of those things, none of those fears, none of that anxiety was there, not in the same way. I think that's true, but I think one difference between our generation and a younger generation is that they are a little bit more... um, Uh, I think a little bit more sophisticated about where happiness comes from. And I think their expectation for true and deep happiness is a little bit greater. I think they really, you know, their concept is not, I want to succeed. I think that their, their fundamental core thinking is, I want to be happy. 
when when you when you interview kids as I have, it doesn't matter what the country is. Success is not a word that kids use. That's a word that adults use. What kids the word that kids use always is happy. I want to be happy, and I think so many feel like life moves so quickly, and you know these small decisions that we make, such as where we go to school or what we decide to study or who we affiliate with, have such great and long-term consequences that, my gosh, we better be careful in making those choices. And I think they feel as though the world kind of rushes by and, you know, they've, they've kind of bought into a narrative and in a sense they've been sold a narrative that, you know, all of these little choices make all the difference about who you are, you know, when you, when you reach maturity. And I think they're nervous about making those choices. And uh, I think sometimes they feel like they're kind of, you know, uh, forced to make choices faster than they want to make them. I mean, the irony of that, all of that, I suppose, is that the net result is it's making them more unhappy. I think that's right. They, um, you know, they, they are unhappy because, though, and this is the critical thing, Jeff, because we don't have a conversation with young people about those things. Please, please, I hope your listeners will take this to heart, is that we are talking to kids almost all the time with a sense of our anxiety behind our words, or we're talking to them about something that they've done wrong or they could do better. We should be having more conversations that relate to kids' identity, helping them to kind of explore who they are, what has relevance and some purpose in their lives. Most kids, they're, they're not even accustomed to those kinds of conversations. That stuff doesn't even come up around the dinner table, or it's peripheral to the main issues in life, which is you've got to get good grades, you've got to get the best grades to get into the very best school. And by the time kids are 14 or 15, they are ready to do some something that has greater community relevance, something that is going to earn uh, acknowledgement from other people that can be admired by others. This is a huge issue for boys, is by the time they reach early adolescence, such a deep need for admiration. We often call this, you know, self-absorption. Sometimes we refer to it as the narcissism of males. Well, they come by it naturally. I think that's just a, a part of the wiring of young males, and they have that strong need, and yet there are so few opportunities for them to do things that will actually garner that sort of admiration and approval. Dr. Adam Cox, his book is Cracking the Boy Code, How to Understand and Talk with Boys. Adam, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a great pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.